Welcome to the weekend edition of The Daily Stoic. Each weekday, we bring you a meditation inspired by the ancient Stoics, something to help you live up to those four Stoic virtues of courage, justice, temperance, and wisdom. And then here on the weekend, we take a deeper dive into those same topics. We interview Stoic philosophers. We explore at length how these Stoic ideas can be applied to our actual lives and the challenging issues of our time. Here on the weekend, when you have a little bit more space, when things have slowed down, be sure to take some time to think, to go for a walk, to sit with your journal, and most importantly, to prepare for what the week ahead may bring. Hey, it's Ryan. Welcome to the Daily Stoke Podcast. We've got a special bonus episode for you today. I thought this was lost in the ether and I didn't get a recording of it. That's why it's coming to you now months after it happened. Um, But it was such a fun interview to do and I think an important interview to do. And it was a chance for me to talk to a hero and a great influence on me as a writer, the one and only Walter Isaacson. I had a chance to interview him as part of a elite private group called Beyond Labels, which I was invited to by a guy named Zachary Todd. He emailed me in in February and said, hey, last minute, but do you want to interview Walter Isaacson? And I said, "Uh, yeah, I do. So here is my interview with Walter Isaacson about his great book, The Codebreaker, Jennifer Doudna, Gene Editing, and the Future of the Human Race. And uh, we talk about a whole bunch of stuff, takes you way back to see where we were Uh, You see some of the current events we're talking about back in February. But um, this interview with Walter was a dream of mine because as I tell him, I used his Da Vinci book in my writing. I used his Steve Jobs book in Obstacle. I've used his Benjamin Franklin book in Ego. I really liked his book, The Wise Men, Six Friends and the World They Made, which I read, uh, I guess, late last year. Also used in uh, some of my writing. You may have seen Jennifer Doudna pop up in some of the Daily Dad emails we've done, in the Daily uh, Stoic emails we've done. Walter has such an eye for anecdotes and insights and explaining what makes great people great, how they do what they do. And uh, that's why I was very excited to chat with him as part of this. And so I'm presenting this as a bonus episode of the Daily Stoic podcast. This is me in conversation with the one and only Walter Isaacson, Thanks to Beyond Labels for bringing us together. And do check out his new book, Codebreaker, Jennifer Doudna, Gene Editing, The Future of the Human Race. And I had written most of the book by about a year and a half ago, and uh, but was still working on updating it. And I said, well, a couple things could happen. I'm going to wait for the October 2020 Nobel Prize because if we're lucky, uh, it might go to the CRISPR inventors, whoever they pick. And then uh, as I was writing the epilogue, as you can see from reading the epilogue, I was on the balcony right behind me looking at the diversity of people on Royal Street here in the French Quarter and thinking about what CRISPR could mean. And that's when the COVID crisis, that's when the shutdown happened. And I decided to delay the book uh, because clearly uh, the notion that an RNA-based virus 
that was going to be fought by an RNA-based vaccine and detected by RNA-based CRISPR technology. And eventually, I think our viruses, we're not going to fight them with vaccines. That uses our kind of weird, tricky immune system. We should do what bacteria have done for, for a billion years, and they're not much smarter than we are, which is just have a system that attacks the, back, the virus directly rather than tries to churn up our immune system. So I spent, you know, the past year and so uh, writing that part of the book. But compared to most things, it wasn't a rush. It was a nice, easygoing thing. The other thing about it being at the time of coronavirus, I had traveled around, been to Berlin in Emmanuel Charpentier's lab, spent a lot of time in Doudna's lab in Berkeley. But I got to hang around in real time because uh, everybody was now meeting with Slack and Zoom. So I'm meeting and uh, I'm getting to hang uh, at uh, the whole teams out at Doudna Lab working on coronavirus just every day, monitoring their Zoom meetings, lurking in their Slack channels. Same with uh, some people at uh, MIT and Harvard. So it was a new form of reporting to watch it unfold in real time. There's something uh, sort of swimming up against the stream of of the Big Easy in your sort of prolificness and your... Uh, yeah, your prolificness. Wait, wait I, I, I don't need a lecture in prolificness from Ryan Holiday. Well, I, I remember when I was living in New Orleans writing my first book, I didn't tell anyone. There's sort of an embarrassing thing when you decide to be to write a book because you don't know if it's going to work and everyone's going to tell you it's a terrible idea. So I, I didn't tell anyone. And I met all these new friends when I lived in New Orleans. And, and when the book announcement came out, everyone was very surprised. They said, I didn't know you were a writer. And, and I remember asking, well, what do you think I was doing? And their answer was nothing. They just assumed I was a, another person in New Orleans just hanging out. So I, I've got to imagine that that at the very least, COVID was was good for you in the sense that it's so easy to be distracted in New Orleans. There's so many amazing things to do. You did have a sort of a solid year of the writer's life to perfect this, this thing with fewer distractions. Well, yes. Um, and it, it allowed me to focus. But more importantly, um, CRISPR, gene editing technology and biotechnology in general and, treat, you know, and uh, the life sciences. It was fascinating to me, but suddenly it brought home the importance of it. It, it was like a noble calling suddenly. And I watched as the competitors uh, in this race to get the patents and the prizes for CRISPR, meaning mainly Fong Zhang's group and Jennifer Doudna, Emmanuel Charpentier's group, uh, having been in a really tough competition, then said, okay, we're turning our attention to fighting the coronavirus and we're going to publish our papers openly online and not assert intellectual property rights, but allow people to just build on these papers to fight the coronavirus. And it was a reminder to me and I think to them and to the young people working in their labs, their graduate students, that this isn't just about patents and prizes. This is about humanity. And so it gave, I had started this book thinking that biotechnology and the life sciences was an exciting endeavor with colorful characters and pursuing amazing adventures. And as I got some time to focus on what was happening to our society, I realized I was understating the case. It's more important. It's more of a noble cause. Well, actually, I read another one of your books during the pandemic that, that I felt some strong resonance with 
as I was reading this one, which is, you know, in The Wise Men, you talk about the sort of the best and the brightest of a generation coming to serve their country in the Second World War and then in the Cold War uh, and then a little bit in Vietnam. And it, it struck me that this was a slightly less violent, but nevertheless sort of same coming all hands on deck uh, of a generation of, of brilliant people to solve a problem that's affecting all of humanity for really at, at great opportunity cost. That all these people could have been focused on other projects that might've made them a lot more money, but they chose to, to sort of serve a greater cause. You know, one of the things we talked about in the Cold War and afterwards, or when we were writing about it, is that, you know, we have a lot of nations that are always struggling, competing, sometimes great rivalries. But if there were ever an attack from a different planet, you know, I, I, and I, some uh, alien civilization came to get us, that we would probably bond together as a planet. And that's happening, of course, now with climate change. But coronavirus was the same thing. It happened not only to make us cooperate more internationally, or should have, but it's also made for the collaboration versus the uh, competition side of science to ascend a, a little bit more. So I, I do think it reminds us of the nobility of that mission. When Steve Jobs was, you know, uh, this summer of 2011, and it was clear he wasn't going to make it. I remember sitting in his backyard and saying, you know, what, what, what was it all about? You know, what, what do you think the purpose was? And he said, you know, in studying my Zen studies, I always thought life, like history, was a river. And part of life was how much you got to take out of that river. You got the ideas that people had put in before you and the things they had made and the wonderful devices. And if you were very successful, there was a lot of things you got to take out of that river. He said, but now I realize it's not about what you get to take out of the river. It's what you get to put into the river. And I think the scientists who took up the case of fighting coronavirus using the tools that they had developed from gene editing, from uh, RNA programming of guide RNA and messenger RNA. All of those things helped remind them and us that we're in a pretty much of a larger fight and that there's a privilege of what you get to put into the river. I was, I was thinking of Steve Jobs as well. So I, I got my vaccine yesterday. I was volunteering. My wife and I have been volunteering at a vaccine clinic and I got mine yesterday. My wife got hers about an hour ago. And as they were putting the shot in my arm and, and I just, you know, spent the whole day watching, you know, ferrying people through the halls and wheelchairs, filling up paperwork. Then on the one hand there, it, it took this brilliant innovation, um, CRISPR and the vaccines and the scientific collaboration you're talking about. And then uh, sort of how nuts and bolts boots on the ground it was, like just having to get shots in thousands of people's arms and how we've struggled a little bit We've actually struggled more with the second part of the equation than the first part of the equation. And I wondered too, you know, um, part of what was so brilliant about Steve Jobs was he was also a logistical genius. Um, but I was also thinking of Steve Jobs, that, that every Steve Jobs needs a, a Tim Cook as well, that there's the, a, a time for brilliant innovation, but then also a time for logistics. Yeah, you know, when I asked Steve Jobs what the greatest product he ever made was, I thought he'd say either the iPhone or the Mac. And he said, no, making products like that's hard. But what's really hard is making a team that can continue to deliver such products. And the thing he said I did, he did best was making the team at Apple. And Tim Cook is very much of a part of that because, you know, vision without execution is um, hallucination. So 
you have to be able to execute. And I was down in Washington uh, for a few days earlier this week, you know, with some of the people who've gone into the administration. And whatever your politics are, when you start talking to people like a Jeff Zients or a Ron Klain or Bruce Reed or uh, Kate Bedingfield or whatever, that are trying to figure out this system. And I was there for the announcement uh, that Merkin was going to manufacture the Johnson and Johnson's vaccine in you know, collaboration with Johnson and Johnson, the two big competitors in the pharma business, um, you realize that we sometimes in this day and age make everything about politics. We make everything, you know, polarized or whatever. Well, 90% of government uh, is not the policy, you know, is not the policy dispute. It's the execution. And I was quite impressed, if I may say so, with, you know, a team that has the people I named and Vivek Murthy and so many uh, other people that are saying, how do we get Merck and Johnson and Johnson to work together? How do we make sure they're refrigerated supply chains uh, from beginning to end? So uh, we should admire those who uh, actually can execute. Yeah, there's different kinds of genius, right? There's the uh, brilliant visionary, and then there's the person who can bring that vision to life. And sometimes that's the same person, sometimes it's not. It did feel like Jennifer is has a, a mix of both of those things. She's able to build a team. She's she's not just a, a, a theoretical thinker, but but was able to think about what this could actually do. Here's what I write about on her building a team, which is not totally pure praise and it's different than other people sometimes do. If I looked at Steve Jobs, he liked a lot of creative tension at times. I mean, he occasionally called people a jerk. Sometimes he used a more technical term <laughs> that begins with an A. I mean, he got people at each other's throats. He loved them to fight. And, you know, it was it was a culture somewhat akin to Franklin Roosevelt's, uh, you know, team at the White House with creative destruction at its core. And Jennifer Dowd told me that when she's hiring for her lab or inviting uh, graduate students to become part of the lab or creating a company, she gets them all together and makes sure that they really like each other, to make sure that they um, there's no tension between them and that there's a camaraderie. And I said, well, don't you lose out on some of the creative types, the ones who are gonna be a disruptor? Don't you want some disruptive types on the team. And she said, yes, really great leaders probably do that, but I don't. I like it when we can get along and work um, collaboratively. Dell Tech Fest starts now. To thank you for 40 unforgettable years, Dell Technologies is celebrating with anniversary savings on their most popular tech. For a limited time, only save on select next-gen PCs like the XPS 13, where you can make the everyday easier with Windows 11. Plus, curate your dream setup with great deals on select monitors, mice, and must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at dell.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge technology and free shipping on everything. That's dell.com slash deals. We chose to do something that we've never done here before at Daily Stoke. For one week only, you can sign up and immediately begin the 2022 New Year New You Challenge at your own pace. 
We recorded, edited, timestamped my live Q&As. That's three hours of me answering questions on a wide variety of topics, including how I applied stoicism to my own life, my goals, my practices. We talk about what to do when you're overwhelmed, when you've taken on too much, ways to rethink your habits, routines, when life gets too chaotic, and so much more. You get the benefit of all the other people who've been through the challenge and what they've learned and shared as well. And additionally, the New Year New You Challenge participants get 21 custom challenges delivered daily that will help you stop procrastinating, gain clarity on the life you wanna live, learn new skills. Again, this is just for a week. If you procrastinated earlier in the year, if you told yourself you were gonna get around to it and you missed it, well, you got a second chance. You've been given a do-over, a reprieve. You can sign up at dailystoic.com slash challenge. And as always, if you're a Daily Stoic Life member, that's dailystoiclife.com. You get this challenge and all the challenges that we have planned for the year for free. So check that out, dailystoiclife.com. And of course, dailystoic.com slash challenge. Yeah, there was a theme you talk about early in the book, the idea that a lot of brilliant visionaries, that that way of looking at the world comes from some sort of early alienation, some sense of feeling different or unusual and so I could imagine that takes you two ways as a leader. Either you thrive on a sort of alienated, conflict-oriented environment, or you want it to be peaceful and everyone gets along and we're all friends. You know, Ryan, that's a really good insight. And I wish I'd had it myself, but uh, since this is a friendly crowd, uh, next time I use that insight, I'll credit you. And the right. following times, I'll pretend it was my own insight. Because, I mean, even with a Henry Kissinger, who was the very first uh, biography I did, he came out of the Holocaust. And you talk about coming out in an environment where you feel alien. You know, imagine being a pudgy Jewish, you know, 10-year-old growing up in the early 1930s in Firth and uh, Germany. And there are two types of people who come out of that experience. There are people uh, like uh, Elie Wiesel who come out of it feeling, uh, you know, never again and uh, with a moral a strong moral streak that informs them. Or there are people like a Henry Kissinger come out with a real feel for power, and they're never going to be in a situation where they can't feel that they can handle the balances of power and they won't put themselves in positions where they're powerless again. So yeah, those of us who are biographers, we always look for that, what happened when they were six, eight, nine years old as a way as the key, as that rosebud moment in Citizen Kane, that's the key to the biography. And, you know, whether it's Einstein, my book sort of has his father giving him a compass right. and he's mesmerized, you know, about why the needle points north when nothing's touching it. And always trying to figure out what a force, fe and you and I remember getting compasses when we were, you know, six, seven years old and like, oh, wow, it points north. And then we're outside walking, oh, look, a dead squirrel. And we forget about the compass. But Einstein for his whole life is mesmerized by the question of a force field. And Steve Jobs, it was building a fence around the backyard of his house. And his father made him put this side of the fence that faced the woods that nobody would see, make it as beautiful as the front. And Steve always believed in the power of the beauty unseen. And so all of the people have these sort of moments and for Jennifer, it was growing up as a tall, lanky, blonde kid when every other kid in her class was Polynesian because she was in a small town in Hawaii and being curious about every little thing but feeling alienated. So like, you know, a Leonardo who 
comes from the village of Vinci to the town of Florence, and he's born out of wedlock, he's gay, he's left-handed, he's distracted. You spend a lot of the time saying, okay, here's this cosmos, how do I fit in? I was, when, when I read your books, one of the things that, and I got to imagine you can't be a biographer and not think this, because otherwise what would be the point, but each one of your books is about a single person, although this one's about obviously more than one person, but it's about a single person who changed the world, who changed the course of human history through their own brilliance and and willpower and and ambition. Um, but that, that it's weird in in our today's conversation where everything is structural or systemic or institutional. The idea that the great man or great woman of history theory exists is sort of passe, but you seem like you deeply believe that an individual can make a difference. Well, they can. And as you know, this uh, since you've written about the Stoics and the Epicureans or whatever, this has been a debate that's been going on since Thucydides about to what extent the great forces of, uh, you know, shape history and to what extent individuals can ripple the surface of history. Uh, and uh, very beginning, the first epigraph of my Henry Kissinger book is something I found in a confidential file uh, from his shuttle missions uh, when he was in the Middle East. And he said to a group of people on the plane, when I was a professor of history at Harvard, I thought that history was shaped by great forces. But now that I see it up close, I see the difference that an individual can make. Uh, he was pretending to be talking about Sadat and uh, Golda Meir, but I think he was also talking about himself. But it's true that history is a mix of great forces, but also people who are able to bend that arc of history. Whether it's Dr. King or Dr. Doudna, they touch the arc of history and they're able to move it a little bit. Yeah, we were talking about sort of the, the, the Rosebud moment. I think about that line about Theodore Roosevelt, a biographer said, uh, you know, he read about the great men of history and, and believed that he could be just like them. I, I love that this is a book about a, a woman who changed history because uh, it's. I think it's important for everyone to be able to see that that it's really that a human being can change or touch the arc of history. It has nothing to do with gender. Uh, it just has to do with 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 those traits that allows one to to be great. Yeah, although women have been written out of the history of science and technology, as Esther will. He knows all that well, and we've talked about it quite a bit. Uh, and so there aren't quite as many role models. When Jennifer was in sixth grade, she comes home and her dad has left on bed the double helix, Jim Watson's book. And Jennifer thought it was a detective story, picks it up one Saturday and realizes it is a detective story about the chase for the greatest secrets ever. And she reads the book and what strikes her is this character known as, quote, Rosie, something Rosalind Franklin never called right. herself, but Jim Watson calls her Rosie in a condescending way. And I asked her about it. She said, yeah, I, I guess it was a condescending treatment of Rosalind Franklin. But for me, it was the very first time, believe it or not, that I realized a girl could be a scientist. And so she decided from reading that book that she wanted to pursue science. And her guidance counselor at school said, no, girls don't become scientists. But she persisted. So I think it's important, yes, uh, to make sure that people from all walks of life, uh, you know, in all backgrounds get to realize that they can ripple the surface of history and touch it, too. 
but it's also important to have role models. Was that something you consciously thought about having uh, written biographies of so many powerful men that you you wanted to try writing about someone different? Or was this just naturally the story that presented itself? Yeah, it's a good question. And in some ways I can can answer. I mean, I wanted to write about the biotech and life science revolution. I was kicking it around for a long time. I'd written about the physics revolution of the first half of the 20th century, beginning with Einstein's papers. That gives us everything from atom bombs to, you know, semi-processors to, you know, GPS and space travel. I'd written about the next revolution of innovation, which was the digital revolution, both with the innovators and Steve Jobs. And that's when the microchip, uh, the computer and the network all converge. So I knew my next book was going to be about the third great wave of innovation, uh, which is in the life sciences, beginning to some extent with the Human Genome Project and, you know, making it the first half of the 21st century. And there are a lot of characters, one of whom, of course, is on this Zoom uh, meeting, who uh, could be great biographies and great central characters for such a journey of discovery. Uh, I had met Jennifer Doudna a few times, our past crossed at Aspen, many other things. Mercedes will remember her. I think I interviewed her on stage six or seven years ago at the Institute. And the more I heard about her and her story, it had that element of a woman, uh, you know, triumphing in the fields of science, triumphing in collaboration because she was kind of left out a bit of the human genome project and DNA. So she and Jillian Banfield and Emmanuel Sharpenjay, they're all focusing on RNA, as are some men like Jack Shostak, her advisor. But, you know, she's going where the soccer ball isn't. And then she uh, does a lot of good work on RNA structure and then is the co-developer of the CRISPR technology and then throws herself into the policy and ethical debates internationally on this. So she turned out to be a great narrative thread, but I hope in the book uh, she's the narrative thread but George Church, the, you know, as I mentioned, who's on this call, Fong Zhang, Emmanuel Sharpenjay, J- Jillian Banfield, they're all major characters in the book, and they deserve books and movies of their own. And one of the things George pushed on me early on in this project is that the real heroes of CRISPR, and we'll get into later why that phrase has a resonance, were the graduate students. So there's a lot in this book about Martin Yinak and Christoph Chalinski and uh, Le Kong and um, uh, Jennifer Hamilton and Enrico Lin Chao and the people who really did the uh, work at the bench. I, I had one last question for you and then we should open it up to, to the audience. But I obviously I would guess everyone on this call uh, is a cheerleader of science, a believer in science, a believer in innovation and change. I saw this meme, actually, I think I saw it this morning, and it said, you know, 90 scientists. And it said, uh, you know, we've mapped the human genome. We've cloned a sheep. You know, we've done these things. And then it was like, today, scientists, we're telling you for the last time, the earth is round. You know, we're, we're, we're experiencing, in parallel to these massive breakthroughs, we're also experiencing a backlash against science or a hesitancy against science. What what sort of thoughts do you have or advice do you have to people who are like yourself trying to evangelize these ideas or just 
trying to talk to a, an uncle who, you know, has been sucked into the, the Facebook algorithm. Well, I hope uh, we all have antidotes to that in our daily lives. And my antidote was to write this book. I mean, the uh, backlash against science and expertise isn't new. It's been going on for 10, 15 years. And, uh, you know, anti-vaxxers existed even before there were coronavirus vaccines. And so I wrote this book because I believe if you demystify something, it becomes less conspiratorial, less frightening. And so the best way to demystify science is to make it a narrative, a journey of discovery. And so my book is intended to go hand in hand with me and Jennifer Doudna and a dozen, you know, dozens of other people as we go on a journey of discovery. And as you do that, you say, okay, I now get that science is not only a noble pursuit, it's a beautiful pursuit. And nature is pretty awesome. And if you understand it, you become less of a uh, reactionary uh, against science. So each of us makes a small contribution, but without seeming arrogant, I hope this book is a you know small contribution to this cause. Anybody who reads this book, I promise you, uh, they may not love the book, but they will be more pro-science at the end of reading this book. They I love will that. realize that heroes don't always wear capes. They sometimes wear lab coats. <laughs> I love that. Hey, it's Ryan. Thank you for listening to the Daily Stoic Podcast. I just wanted to say we so appreciate it. We love serving you. It's amazing to us that over 30 million people have downloaded these episodes in the couple years we've been doing it. It's an honor. Please spread the word, tell people about it. And this isn't to sell anything. I just wanted to say thank you. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to The Daily Stoic early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen early and ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Varian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. From Wondery, this is Black History For Real. I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Conscious Lee. 
What do most <laughs> people think about when they hear the words Black History? Rosa Parks, Reconstruction, MLK, February, Black History Exactly, Mom. exactly. There are so many stories of Black history that we just are not really talking about or thinking about, especially outside of February. And we are about to flip the script on all of that. Because on this show, you're going to hear a little less in August 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And a little bit more. She is a heroine to some. As a fighter for black rights, she is a villain to others. Follow Black History for Real on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen everywhere on February 5th, or you can listen early and ad-free on Wondery Plus starting January 29th. Join Wondery Plus on the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Black